through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, this is Out of the Box, but no, this is not Joey Watson. It's producer Bree here, jumping on the mic to run you through a very special supporter drive episode of Out of the Box. Here at FBI radio, we're a hothouse for young radio talent. Many of our volunteers have gone on to achieve some pretty incredible things in the industry, and we're proud as punch to be able to say that they got their start right here at FBI. As a not-for-profit, we rely on your support to continue to foster the next generation of movers and shakers. So this week on Out of the Box, we're going to take a look back at some stories from some much-loved FBI alumni. And hopefully these very talented human beings will inspire you to unlock your phone, open up your browser, enter fbiradio.com slash support and chuck us a few bones. First up today, we're going to hear from former Mornings host and now Triple J presenter, Bridie Tanner. I wonder, Bridie, where, where were you... Um do you remember where you would have been when you first discovered that FBI even existed as a radio station? So I moved down to Sydney when I was about 18 years old and I didn't come from a place that had cool community radio stations so we had very limited amount of radio that you could listen to. It was basically commercial or the ABC. Mm-hmm. And coming down to Sydney, wanting to get into radio, everyone's like, oh, you have to check out FBI. You'll love FBI. So radio was already, you already had a radio dream. Yeah. You'd moved from Grafton, which is in regional New South Wales, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Yeah. Um, but you already had a vision of radio. Where yeah. did that come from? Big, big dreams. Uh, small town girl, big city dreams to work in radio. I think it came from basically having a radio in my room and just having that on as my connection to the world outside of Grafton. So listening to music constantly and that goes way back into my childhood I remember when I was about maybe seven years old calling up the local commercial radio station and requesting Afro Mans because I got high uh, to no success from that music jock but you know maybe you'll play it for me today I don't know sure pushing up pushing the world the wonderful world of music from an early age Um, what about your first contact with FBI how long did that take you'd moved to Sydney you had a radio dream someone tells you about the existence of this radio machine and uh, where's your first contact? So I'm refreshing the website, waiting for them to do a volunteer intake, which they do each year. Refreshing, refreshing, refreshing. Uh, Not Try not to get too nervous about it, but really keen to get in. And then one day it just pops up. We're taking volunteers and I was like, okay, okay, be cool, be cool, be cool. You know, I had listened to the station now for a few months I had fallen in love with so many of the programs and so many of the hosts and so much of the music I just couldn't believe that something so me existed in the world and wanted to become a part of it so desperately I was also a bit of a nervous Nelly because I kind of I don't know I was quite intimidated by cool city folk I felt like I didn't really fit in down here in Sydney and I put in an application and they got back and said that I was going to come in for an interview and that was probably one of the best emails I've ever received. What, what does the volunteer intake interview look like for someone that hasn't, hasn't touched on, on that before? You're sitting in a boardroom with about eight other cool-looking, in-touch, on-the-pulse sort of young people. And there's two people from FBI basically going around and asking questions. And you know those group interviews where everyone answers around in a circle and it's like slowly coming towards you and you're like, okay you know, I got this, and then someone says your answer, and it's like, okay, I've got to think of something else to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you never know whether you want to be the first in the circle or the last. There's pros and cons to both. Yeah, I I think I plotted out to sit somewhere in the middle so I had enough time to think of my answer, but not so long that everyone would have said anything you could possibly say Strategically done. How long does it take for you to find out the outcome of that? It took a fair few weeks, and I was refreshing my inbox every day, You know how you do when you're waiting to hear back from a job and you just want it so badly and you just don't even realise you're doing it but you're just refreshing your inbox. You pretend you don't care but you you really care. care. And I had talked myself out of it. It's like, whatever, like, I don't care if I get it or not. Like, who cares? It's fine. And nothing came for ages and ages and I was like, don't even care, whatever. But I checked my junk mail 
uh, one one day, and there was an email in there from an FBI person, an FBI email address. And I was like, oh, and it said, dear Amesia, like it was addressed to someone else. We'd love to have you in an FBI. And I hit respond and I was like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You'll take I didn't, it. I didn't, get, I didn't give a shit that it was addressed to someone else. <laughs> no, na- naturally. Yeah. So you start volunteering. Where are you in the station when you start off? And I mean, how long ago is this now? Oh, like 2013. Right. So I was... Four years have passed. Yes, mm. some some many many years have passed since then. Mm. And I was on the front desk, and I was a receptionist for the station, and I was so eager to do a good job. <laughs> what does that look like? What does it mean to be eager on the front desk? Like just really alert. And when people would come to the front door, I was in charge of letting them in with the buzzer. You know, sort of high importance jobs like that. And I would sort of not want to hit it so soon that they wouldn't like know that I was alert and opening the door for them. I want them to get close enough to hear it that like but they wouldn't have to press the buzzer. It it was it was a bit intense for everyone involved, I'm sure. <laughs> this is a very unique uh, FBI FBI radio story because the buzzer um the speed on the buzzer at the door does somehow eventually open up opportunities for you. It determines right? your whole future, it Joey. It determines your future. How did that happen for you? How did it progress from there? How did it progress? Well, I spent a little while on the front desk and then I actually moved up home to do my last year of uni at Lismore internally. And then I came back and I was had a, sort of a, maybe a bit more confidence and I was like, okay, hitting up people, like what's the go with getting into some producing? And eventually a slot came up on Jack Shit's show on a Saturday for a producer. I love that show. One of my most listened since well before I was at, at FBI, probably when you were producing it. I think it was a really good fit for me because I loved, you know, working really hard and trying different things. And Jack Shit is the kind of guy who wants to throw all of the rules of radio out the window and create this sort of immersive program space. So I was really keen to get involved on that show. And I loved his, I loved his attitude towards things. He's really, you know, he's strongly opinionated. He will boycott stuff, call shit out on air. He's the only presenter I've actually ever heard on this station, possibly ever, say, that was a shit song, don't you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> like, when do you hear that? No. I mean, on, on on this show, I get the advantage of, you know, having guests from varying backgrounds yeah. bringing in a whole variety oh, of Oh, I'm going to play songs. some real stinkers for you today, Joey. But, you know, if a song's um, brought on with enough enthusiasm, then, um, you know, it's enough to make anything sound good. Uh, so... Eventually, your uh, dulcet tones do come on to the airwaves. How does that happen? How do you go from producing with Jack Shit to speaking on the air? So, I want to shout out to anyone who's ever been rejected from a job that they really wanted multiple times because this is what happened to me. I applied for presenter training three times and got knocked back all three times. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the uh, the group interview thing probably got to me a little bit. I wasn't I wasn't on my my best foot. I was probably a little bit, you know, shaky and nervous, and didn't come across quite right. And I actually ended up volunteering at a another community radio station, and started presenting their breakfast show, and got you know got my chops up there. Got your chops up. And then came back to our then programming director and said, hey, do you want to have a listen to my show, maybe? She was like, hey, this is good. You can start on the all-nighters next week if you like. I was like, bye to the other station. (laughs) You're going to need to find someone else. (laughs) That was what you needed. What happens in an all-nighter? Well, I mean, the, the listener might know, you know, from, from listening, driving along at three in the morning, what it sounds like, but what's it like when you're actually here? It's a bizarre time because your brain is hardwired to be asleep at that time, but you have to be alert and focused. And doing radio is kind of like driving a car, you know? You've got all these different things going on that you have to be aware of and checking. And yeah, There's a lot of buttons in front of me. There's a lot of, of buttons. I don't know what most of them do, um, but, um, <laughs> but look, I just press them and then and if we start talking, usually things, things get out there. Yeah. But at some stage on the all nights, you're here by yourself, so you don't have people like you to fall back on. You don't. So you're getting your head around the panel and you're pretty much by yourself in the station, right? It's almost a little bit scary as well because there's a lot of glass around. Sometimes you catch your reflection moving a little bit and you think someone else is in here. (laughs) At four in the morning. At four in the morning, you have a bit of a heart attack. It's nightmarish. Mm, Absolutely. But then I sort sort of started to think 
from the perspective of the listener, who's up right now? Who am I talking to? When have I been awake in four o'clock in the morning and listening to the radio and started thinking about how I can talk to that person? And, you know, when you hear someone on the radio, you kind of think that's what people are doing when they listen to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really beautiful sentiment. I really like that. As a radio maker, I really like that. Who what are, who are they and what are they doing right now? Yeah. Um, this is a, a story of a victory story. The, the, the girl from Grafton makes it. You eventually end up on uh, with your very own show on mornings two days a week, which you've been, now been doing for a while. Yeah. How, how did it come to you? So the then programming director pulled me into the music library for a quick chat and I was like, oh, what have I done? You know, I've I've screwed something up here. I've said something wrong. And she said, hey, I've really been liking the way you've been sounding. Do you want to do mornings, which is um, two days a week? And I was just like, oh, 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 yes, yes, please. Oh, God, yes. And I think that was one of the best pieces of news I ever had. I walked out of this station on my way home up to the train station at Redfern with the most confidence I've ever had in my life. I had so much swag in my step. I was like pointing at people I didn't even know across the street. And I just got home and called everyone like, I'm going to be on mornings on FBI. Like it was literally a dream come true moment. (laughs) Bridie, what are we going to play first? Let's go to some music now. What do we play in tribute to your FBI radio journey? Well, this song, uh, Sunscreen by, uh, sorry, Voices by Sunscreen came out when I sort of first got mornings. And I think this is one of the songs I would have had in my headphones, walking up from the station, feeling infinitely confident. And it just reminds me of that time, this sort of warm Sydney air, the weather starting to change, that jangly guitar sound that just is so chronically Sydney, it hurts. Yeah, I'm just a legendary Sydney band. They put me
That was Voices by local favourite Sunscreen, bought into Out of the Box by former Mornings host Bridie Tanner. My name is Producer Bree, and this show is Out of the Box, broadcasting every Thursday from midday to one. This week, we're delving into the archives to bring you some stories from some very talented people who got their start right here at FBI. If any of these stories whet your appetite, you can listen back to the full episodes at fbiradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been listening to FBI over the past couple of days, you'll know that we're in the middle of our Bring It Home supporter drive. You can sign up or renew your support at fbiradio.com support. But that's enough from me. Up next, we're going to listen to Stu Buchanan, and he's going to take you through FBI's origin story. So, Stu, you're living in Australia. You've moved out here with your wife. You're in Marrickville. How does this radical idea, FBI radio, come to you? <laughs> well, um, it, it actually came through. Uh, a friend of my wife's um, was working at the station, uh, Megan Loader, um, who was also kind of one of the kind of she was founding mothers of FBI. Um, and uh, we found out that they were looking for someone to come and join the station uh, in, a, in a paid job. And uh, so back then as a, as a communications manager. Um, so I was lucky enough that I did my interview and got the job. And it was maybe in the job for a couple of weeks. Um, and I kind of think I overheard in the corner of the room, Megan said, oh, we've got this show, we've got this slot, we really want to do something around, you know, kind of international music, kind of non-Western music. We don't really have anyone to do it. And I just thought, I could do that. So I just said, hey, Megan, I'll have a go. I'll do that. Now, I'd done some very, very little bits and pieces of radio before, but never had a regular show before. And Megan, to her credit, went, all right, give it a go. Um, and so, you know, that's really how I got my first go at FBI and broadcast my first show in that first week. But to be honest, that was a story of probably maybe 80% of the people who were broadcasting on FBI right back then. They hadn't had the experience of running a program. You know, there were a few who had been on uh, other stations, um, but uh, the majority hadn't. So we were all really green and all really doing it for the first time and kind of figuring it out as we went. What was the composition of the group? Were they mainly musicians, creatives? Was it Was it a mix? Um, yeah, I mean, there was there was certainly some of that, um, but I think it's you know it's it's people who um, you know, yeah, it's hard to kind of say because um, it probably you'd have some people who, as I say who had who had some expertise who'd maybe come from you know maybe doing some filling shows on the ABC and stuff like that, um, people who were promoting gigs and promoting clubs and so on. Um, so it was more, I guess, on that on that side. Um, we did, however, of course, start. Um, the Sunset Strand at that time as well. So, you know, Sunset's been going for 16 years and that was obviously very much bringing in people who were DJing or who had their own club nights, which is, again, still very similar to what it is today. So your um, first show is My Fat Planet. What did it actually sound like? What did it sound like to the listener? Well, the pitch to Fat Planet was, imagine what FBI would sound like if it was somewhere else in the world, okay? So if FBI was actually running in Tokyo or if it was running in Brazil uh, or Sao Paulo, um, you know, or somewhere in South Africa, or somewhere in Mumbai or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would it play? What what would be the music that it would play? Um, so, therefore, the kind of sound of the show was then quite like FBI, but it was playing music um, that uh, had sometimes never been heard, on, certainly not on FBI and often not on Australian radio because we were just finding stuff, really obscure stuff uh, from all over the world and, um, you know, and presenting it in that way. I want to ask a bit about the kind of the, the structure and reputation of FBI in its early years. Mm, mm. How long did it take for it to um, get off the ground? Um, there's kind of probably two answers to that. I mean, the, there's the kind of, you know, financial answer, which is, you know, it, it took a good few years to really stabilize and get up. Um, but I think it pretty much hit the ground running in terms of, um, you know, people's need for something like FBI. It had done uh, what we call some test broadcasts. What I mean by that, it, it, it would every year do like a month of broadcasting um, and those licenses, essentially any any group could apply for. So I think we did a month broadcasting. I wasn't involved at this time. Did a month broadcasting out of a lay-by in Bondi and then another month broadcasting in above some Chinese restaurant in George Street next to the cinema. And, and so a few people knew about it and I've been doing that for quite a few years that we'd have benefit gigs and so on so there was quite a, um, a kind of FBI was known but it wasn't like a full-time broadcaster like it is today and I had to kind of apply for that license and uh, and you know and, and eventually won that license and started broadcasting so it wasn't like it was completely unknown 
Um, but it did have a reputation for being quite uh, essentially, I would say, like a rock station, right? So it played a lot of like, you know, Sydney rock bands or kind of indie bands. Um, didn't have a reputation for being a dance station or, or anything like that. To the point I remember on um, the first day when we played the first song, which was kind of like this weird thing. It was called the FBI Supergroup, and they got all these bands to do a song. It was actually a kind of cover of, a, of, of an old rock song. Um, and the first comment on the website within two minutes of FBI launching was, here we go again, it's just another rock station. And then, like, the second track we played was some DFA remix, and it was like, oh, okay, maybe that comment just came in a few minutes too soon, <laughs> you know? Else, yeah. yeah, and then we're straight into Sunsets that night. So I think it surprised people that we were covering both, you know, both, I guess, the kind of indie community, but also the dance community, and a very, very strong uh, hip-hop community as well. You know, FBI really championed Australian hip-hop around that time. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think that was the surprise for everybody, that the FBI could be, um, you know, could represent a, a multitude of music communities rather than a particular kind of genre or strand. And was the music industry receptive? Were you able to pull international acts, for example, the way that yeah. the station is today? Yeah, they were super receptive almost from get-go. Again, because there was a gap, you know, it was, it was difficult to get, um, you know, placement for certain bands, let's say. I mean, what are the other options that, you know, that, that you have? Um, so it was, it, was, it was hard to get placement. And, and, you know, remember the people who are working in, you know, things like local record labels or lo- local promoters, they were so into what FBI was doing that if an international band came in, they were like, you've got to go with FBI, even though they might not have tens of thousands of listeners necessarily, they're the station you really want to be heard on. You know, because they had the tastemakers, right? Which is, which is kind of what F- FBI still is today. So, so I think early on, kind of people realised that it wasn't so much about getting to a reach in terms of a lot of people; it was kind of getting to the right people. And now, of course, sixteen years later, you've got both, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I don't think it was very difficult to convince people. And I remember, I mean, the party that we had here on the first day when we turned it on for the first time was full of folk, mostly from from the music industry, who were just kind of relieved, you know, that FBI was here and finally broadcasting. How did you go chasing talent? Did, did things go wrong in the early stages? Were, was it always a clean process? No. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, because of everything I've just said, you know, some artists would arrive, you know, and they'd arrive at this kind of shop front, uh, you know, in, uh, in Redfern and kind of walk in and go, oh. You know, because they're accustomed to maybe being at the ABC or being at some other kind of you know institution that that looked very grand and rich, and they kind of walk into the station like, oh, okay. So sometimes people come in and go, oh, you know what, well, this is awesome. You know, this is great, um, and they would really kind of go for it and 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 really kind of. Uh, embrace it you know i think people particularly people coming from like indie subcultures you know even though their name bands would come in and go great this is where i'm from i recognize this place you know i I used to maybe dj at a station like this or i grew up with stations like this so they really loved it because it felt like oh yeah this is very kind of authentic to my roots whereas other artists who are a bit more kind of not so much commercial but a bit more established would kind of come in and not know what to do you know so there are plenty of interviews that would go on air that would just be like dead air and difficult really difficult interviews tell me about going after Blondie's Debbie Harry in the early years. <laughs> this is a kind of a bit of an apocryphal story now, but um, I do remember. So Jess Keeley, who was the very first voice on FBI back in 2003, we had the opportunity to interview Blondie, Debbie Harry, um, uh, but at a hotel down at Circular Quay. And um, I was, a, you know, I was my dad was really into Blondie when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, so I listened to a lot of Blondie records and I was kind of, you know, excited at the opportunity. I said, hey, Jess, I'll just come with you and pretend to be like your producer even though I wasn't. So the two of us went together, but Jess had this old clapped out kind of lime, uh, light lime green Volkswagen Beetle that was just a wreck. Um, and, you know, she'd have to try and start it 10 times to get it going. Uh, anyway, we eventually got going and we were maybe about half a kilometre uh, from the hotel in Circular Quay. So we're in the middle of George Street and Jess's Volkswagen just completely claps out and it just stops. And she's pulling the, you know, pulling the clutch about five or six times. It wouldn't go, it wouldn't go. And there's everyone's behind us honking their horns. It's like, Jess, just get out, we'll push. So there's the two of us pushing this Volkswagen all the way down. George Street we couldn't park at the hotel so we're like just abandon it so we just literally pushed it onto the curb and abandoned it and Jess is like if it gets towed away whatever we're going to meet Debbie Harry and we're late so we panned it in there and got in and then like that 
thing I said at the top, FBI punched above our weight. We just turn up and kind of dust ourselves down and go, hi, we're here to interview David Harry. But it was really, you know, that to me really symbolized FBI to some extent because like you, you have that kind of veneer of being, hey, we're FBI and we're, you know, we can do this. Whereas behind the scenes, it's just a little bit chaotic. As long as you got the tape. All right. Now we're playing um, The Emergency. Ooh. Where does this sit in FBI's genesis? Well, this is a, a song, I guess, that got played a lot on FBI uh, in the early days. It actually appeared in one of FBI's first compilations. Back, We actually released compilation CDs, believe it or not. Um, and uh, one of them called Kill Your Idols that, that this appears on, along with some other great Australian bands. But I chose this one because this was the first band that I ever saw when I arrived in Australia. I saw them in some uh, weird little kind of DIY space in Surrey Hills, uh, supported by Spod, who I still think records today. Um, and another artist called Toe Color. And I remember just walking in and thinking, because up until seeing this band, I hadn't managed to find any good music in Sydney. I think it's hard for some people who land pre-FBI to kind of go, where is the music scene? Where is the culture? Where's the good stuff that isn't just, you know, kind of pub rock stuff? And so finding this little venue and finding this band and, you know, was, was a revelation to me. Um, and actually this kind of, it only predated F- me finding FBI by a couple of months, but it was really kind of representative, I guess, of what FBI became. was We Got the Horror by The Emergency, brought in by FBI veteran Stu Buchanan. This September, we're asking you to sign up as an FBI radio supporter and help bring it home for Sydney Music Arts and Culture. If you sign up today before 5.30, you could be taking home a JD Sports $500 voucher. To be in the running for that and other sweet prizes, sign up or renew your support at fbiradio.com support. Next up on this time-travelling wonder episode of Out of the Box, we're going to take a listen to Joey's chat with Triple J's host of Hack, Avani Diaz, whose journey to media stardom began right here at FBI Radio. 
What was your first job in Australian media, speaking of that? Um, so I had two kind of concurrently. I started at um, – I worked at FBI Radio, where we are at the moment. Um, I took a punt and I was in my first few weeks of uni. I was obsessed with the station. I was like, you know what? They're doing a volunteer intake. I'm going to go for it. Um, this guy named Johnny Lou um, – contacted me being like, hey, you've got an interview. I was like, oh, God, what am I going to wear? Am I going to be cool enough? Is this going to work out? Um, and then I met Johnny, who's now a very good friend of mine, and we have a shared group. But he was the first person that I met at FBI. Um, we ended up doing all-nighters together um, on FBI. We were in the same intake. And then we ended up doing a show together, Spin the Bottle, which still goes to air with Johnny on Saturdays, 8 to 10 p.m. Tune in. It's a great show. Legacy stuff. Legacy there. stuff. It's such a good show. Um, and... Yeah, so I started off on Frontline, sort of doing reception stuff, working in the music library, and you would know this more than anyone else, but FBI is just the most awesome place to do stuff. Um, everyone mainly is a volunteer, so they're doing it purely out of the love for the station and, you know, pushing Sydney music, arts and culture to the rest of the country. And... Um, I learnt about radio. Um, the amazing Caroline Gates, who was the program director, taught me all the basics of how to be a radio journalist and a host. And I still carry all those lessons with me today. So, you know, a lot to be grateful for there. But more than anything else, it gave me a, a, a really amazing group of friends. My best friends are people that I've met at FBI. My housemate who I live with is someone I met at FBI Fergal. We met like eight years ago as well. Um, just how it's shaped my life. I'm so grateful for um, and you're certainly not the only one. If you look at the current uh, Triple J roster, I know you've just taken over. It's a, it's got to be what over seventy percent, maybe. I don't know FBI. if it's that much, but there's so many people that are it, FBI it seems a alumni. Very healthy group. What, what, what is it about Triple J that, um, that that brings them such joy from FBI? <laughs> I think it's because FBI, um, you know, it attracts people who really care about. Um, culture and music but it is a really amazing training ground for young journalists and um you know if you're if you're budding to to get into the industry to get into music um you know you look around the industry now and it's all the people that i've been doing stuff with in you know eight nine years ago whether that's um making record labels, um, putting on gigs and events, putting on the biggest festivals. They're all people in one way or another who have done something at FBI, which is a real testament to the station and how much um, it gives a platform to young people who have no experience at all. Like I walked in there and I'd never done anything to do with media. So it's really cool that way. The, it seems that it's almost like kind of like a rite of passage in Australian media is the FBI radio all-nighter. Totally. Uh, how did you go over <laughs> overnights? Oh, it was so crazy. I remember um, when I got in to do overnight um, all-nighters, I was so excited. So I was one of like 14 people and um, our first show, I was so nervous. You start at 1 a.m., I was like um, – you know, had a drink or two with friends at the pub and then they were all at our friend's house listening, which made it worse because you're like, you can kind of just be like, obviously no one's listening at this time. But then knowing that your friends are listening made it worse. And then me and um, Heidi Pett, who's another awesome journalist, um, we were doing our first show together and we were so nervous. You know, there's two ends to a usual radio studio we decided to sit together on one side so we could like help each other's nerves and we'd share the one microphone which was really weird and help press the buttons we'd be like this is the button this is the button and um fbi radio being community radio um is not receiving as much funding as it should from the government and it relies so heavily on the amazing supporters. But that means that um, the equipment doesn't get upgraded very often. So we were playing songs out of two CD players. I don't know if that's how it works now. but um, So you'd play... I think we've had a slight update. It's just a slight update. So not, <laughs> um, not, not an enormous one. Yeah, but fair enough. Something mild, yeah. Um, and so, you know, you'd play one song from one CD and then the next song from the other CD... But for some reason, we kept 
playing the first CD. So he played the same song three times in a row. And people started texting in being like, can you stop playing that song? We've already heard it. I was, we were like, okay, it's good that people are listening, but this is pretty bad. And we just had to let it run through each time because we didn't know that we could just, you know, address it and move on. Um, and that song was tightened up by the Black Keys. Black Keys there with Tighten Up, brought in by the wonderful Avani DS. Producer Bree here with you, digging up the past in the best way possible, I promise, for a very special Supporter Drive episode of Out of the Box. You may not know this, but every person you hear on FBI radio, and almost every person you don't, is a volunteer, including Joey, including myself. And as a community not-for-profit, we rely on listeners to help keep the lights on. We're in the middle of our supporter drive, and this September we're asking you to help bring it home. Join the family at fbiradio.com support and help keep this radio machine chugging along well into the future. Up next, we're going to take a little listen to a more so of Joey's chat with Osman Faruqi from the end of last year. Oz, is, is white nationalism on the rise in Australia from where you're standing, or is it just becoming more visible online? It's a very... It's a fascinating question, and as you're saying it now, I'm realising that my perspective on this is shifting almost day in and day out. And why I say that is not, 
is not because I'm not sure whether white nationalism is becoming more of a pressing issue at the moment. But the question for me is like, was when we, when you ask, is it becoming more of an issue? It's like, what's our benchmark? What are we comparing it against? If you compare it against the origin of this country, 1788, and the invasion by white settlers and the genocide of the indigenous black population, you can argue that it's not a rise, it's a continuation of something that is the core of this country. And that is a, a tension in my head that I'm still grappling with is, on yes, we are seeing a rise of organized political groups. We're seeing the re-entry of organized far-right political plays in our parliament to an extent that we've actually never seen before. And that is, I think, quite terrifying given the links between people like Pauline Hanson to Fraser Anning and Fraser Anning to the Christchurch shooter. These things are all linked and they're all very scary because they're not fringe players. They're players involved in quite terrible things. They're in our parliaments. They're on our streets. But you take a step back and you realize that we didn't call it white nationalism. We didn't call it the far right. But these ideologies of racial supremacy, of white supremacy, of the superiority of the white race and the the, the space that they deserve in this country have been embedded in Australia since day one since 1788, and then right throughout to the fact that the first piece of legislation passed when Australia was federated was the White Australia Act. The fact that when women were given the right to vote in 1902, which is celebrated because Australia was the first federal jurisdiction to give women the right to vote after New Zealand, we don't often talk about the fact that that same act stripped the right to vote from all people of colour, including women of colour. So we don't talk about the fact that actually it was white women who were given the right to vote. Indigenous women didn't have the right to vote. Pacifica women didn't have the right to vote. Asian, South Asian, African women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, And, you know, the white Australia policy only being dismantled ultimately and finally by Whitlam in the 70s, it's more, I think, it's more interesting to see the last few decades of Australia when we saw the rise of multiculturalism and the rise of political multiculturalism. That feels like an aberration. So even though to people of our generation, it's like, well, Australia was this cosmopolitan melting point pot and now white nationalism is, is coming up and it's scary. Actually, the more research I do, the more I think, the more I talk to people about this, that kind of, you know, golden era of multiculturalism, you know, where Fraser let in the Vietnamese refugees and Bob Hawke talked about a tolerant multicultural society to the late 90s where Howard started to crack down on this stuff. That period is an abnormal period. And what we're seeing is a return of the bad stuff. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it feel any better. It's still very bad because you'd like to think that in 2019, we had learnt from white Australia. We'd learnt from 1788, but I'm not convinced we have. Could the flip of that be that things are better than they've ever been then in some way? I've been thinking about this um, in the last couple of weeks, particularly Mm. in the wake of the UK election, Mm. in that it feels like the left is in a complete decline, democracy is in decline, Mm. the things that the new left have been fighting for since the 60s and 70s have just kind of fallen Mm. away. But it's interesting that you went to that because that's kind of what I'm looking at it, but, and maybe that's because I come at it from a position Mm. of privilege, the reverse of that is that things are actually better and that uh, progress just takes a really, really long time. I think, think, look, I think that's... I think this idea of progress is interesting because I think humans are optimists at heart. Like, I believe that despite so much of bad stuff that happens in the world, I don't think humans inherently are created with this desire to do bad things. I think we want to strive to be better and we strive for a sense of harmony and equilibrium and happiness for the people around us. But I think one of the things that seems really obvious to me, looking at both Australia but also global politics, is progress isn't inevitable and we can be moving backwards. I think like things are obviously better for so many categories of people now than they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But I think for the first time in a long time, things feel like they're slipping back. I think the fact that the way our immigration policy has become more brutal and more harsh over the past 10 years and the 10 years before that and the 10 years before that, despite bigger public outcry and despite bigger public campaigns against it, we're not getting better, we're getting worse. Despite the fact that in the United States, which has historically had quite an expansive immigration policy, particularly, you know, on its southern border, has now decided to imitate Australia's immigration policy. The fact that countries in the 
in Europe, in the European Union and in the UK, are, are saying that Australia's model of cracking down on migration is the model that we should be emulating. I find it hard to take solace from that. That makes me hard to be optimistic. It might be a good note to finish on. You mentioned earlier in the episode that uh, you were sceptically critical of your mum's parliamentary strategy for creating social change. Yeah. Um, do you have a preferred method for social change? And before we go straight to the streets, mm. <laughs> um, it doesn't necessarily seem to be working. If we look at the issue of climate change, mm. particularly in Australia, mm. and this is why like, I'm excited that these rallies are still happening mm. with the smoke and everything, but we had half, you know, half a million kids out and adults yeah, out in yeah. in the streets of Australia four or six months ago, whenever that the, the strike was, um, and it almost seems like nothing's come of it. And on the back of the bushfires as well, mm. Scott Morrison has now gone up in the polls. I'm feeling particularly <laughs> helpless right now. I think a lot of people are. You're a kind of practitioner in this space. Mm. What do you think? I think if you if this was five or ten years ago and I was younger, brasher and more arrogant, I would have said to you, Joe, I totally know what the answer is and it's this. But I don't know what the answer is and I know that that's sometimes a difficult thing when you're someone who loves to critique other people is when you don't offer up your own solution. <laughs> but ultimately, one of the reasons why I ended up working in this space as a journalist is because I didn't have the answers, but I thought that there were important things for us to talk about. And there are important ways to talk about certain topics and ways to engage people that haven't been engaged. And that's why I do what I do more. I don't think that journalism can save the world or storytelling can save the world, but it is the fundamental prism through which we understand the world around us. And I think that is the, the base level thing that we need to do before we figure out how we fix these problems. But, but to give you a more direct answer on your point or on your question about parliament versus protest, please, I'm not a reductive, you know, Trotskyist who says that forget, forget camera, let's just march out on the streets. I think for me, even if it's about parliamentarism, even if it's about electoral democracy, there are ways to do it better than what our, all of our politicians are offering it, us now. And I think the sharpest thing I'll say about the Greens in particular is that I think at a moment when so many people, particularly young people, are looking for something exciting and visionary and radical, even as a political prospect for them to vote for, I think that they are giving Australia something that is bland and boring and not that. And I'm not at all holding my mum responsible for that, but she is a Greens MP, so she has to suck up what I say <laughs> about the Greens. Um, and I think that's a missed opportunity. And I don't know whether the, you know they would ever win government off the back of a visionary platform. I don't know. I just think that we need to do something different. And I think people in Australia seem so reluctant to take that radical step. But I think it would be very interesting if they did. <laughs> well, here's to very slowly working it out. <laughs> what do we want to play to finish this? So this is an optimistic note to go out on. This song is by an artist, Cardi B, who I love. And as a little, it's not even a humble brag, Joey, this is just a brag. I do believe that I was the first person to play Cardi B on the Australian airwaves right here at FBI Radio, um, when Bodak Yellow came out, I was in New York, I was at the clubs, uh, the clubs were bumping it, no one in Australia had heard about it, I came back on Backchat and said, there's a song, Bodak Yellow by Cardi B, we've got to get it out of there. So I love the idea that I get to go out on this track, um, I like it by Cardi B, it's fun, it's a bop, it's a summer jam, summer's coming up, enjoy the tune. Fuck with me if you wanted to These expensive, these is red bottoms These is bloody shoes Hit the school, I can get them both I don't wanna choose And I'm quick, cut a nigga off So don't get comfortable Look, I don't dance now I make money move Say I don't gotta dance I make money move If I see you now speak That means I don't fuck with you I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch I make bloody move Now she say she Gon' do what or who? Let's find out and see. Call B. You know where I'm at. You know where I be. You in the club just to party. I'm there. I get paid a fee. I be in and out them banks so much. I know they tired of me. 
honestly Don't give a fuck about who in front of me Drop two mixtapes in six months What bitch working as hard as me I don't bother with these hoes Don't let these hoes bother me They see pictures, they say ghosts Bitch, I'm who they tryna be Look, I might just chill on some babe I might just chill with your boo I might just spill on your babe My pussy feel like a lake He wanna swim with his face I'm like, okay I let him get what he want He buy me Issa Laurent In the new rib When I go fast as a horse I got the trunk in the front I'm the hottest in the street Know you probably heard of me Got a bag and fix my teeth Hope you hoes know it ain't cheap And I pay my mama bills I ain't got no time to chill Think these hoes be mad at me They baby father wanna build Say little bitch, you can fuck with me If you wanted to These expensive, these is red bottoms These is bloody shoes Hit the score, I can get them both I don't wanna choose And I'm quick, cut a nigga off So don't get comfortable Look, I don't dance now I make money moves Say I don't gotta dance, I make money move If I see you now speak, that means I don't fuck with you I'm a boss, you a worker, bitch, I make bloody moves If you a pussy, you get popped You a goofy, you a op Don't you come around my way You can't hang around my block And I just check my account Turns out I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich I put my hand above my hip I bet you dip, he dip, she dip I say, I get the money and go This shit is hot like a stove My pussy Glitter is gold Tell that little bitch play her role I just a rope in the rolls I just came up in a rave I need to fill up the tank No, I need to fill up the safe I need to let all these hoes know That none of their niggas is safe I go to dinner and steak Only the real can relate I used to live in the peace Now it's a crib with a gate Rolly got charms and life frosted flakes Hard to let these bitches know Just in case these hoes forgot I just wanna check the mail Another check from all the stops Fuck with me if you wanted to These expensive, these is red bottoms These is bloody shoes Hit the school, I can get them both I don't wanna choose And I'm quick, cut a nigga off So don't get comfortable Look, I don't dance now I make money moves Say I don't gotta dance I make money moves If I see you now speak That means I don't fuck with you I'm a boss to a worker, bitch I make bloody moves Bloody moves some Cardi B for your listening pleasure, brought into Out of the Box by former Backchat host Osman Faruqi. We're in the middle of our Bring It Home supporter drive, and everyone who signs up or renews before Friday 2nd of October will go in the draw for all of our major prizes, which include a $1,000 JB Hi-Fi voucher, an indoor or balcony plant makeover with Annandale Garden Centre, a year of single-o coffee, and so much more. To be in the running, sign up or renew your support at fbiradio.com support. Uh, and now this week on Out of the Box... We've been taking a look back at some stories from some of our much-loved FBI alumni. And for this final installment of this Supporter Drive special, I thought we'd take it back to where it all started. Joey's first ever episode with former Out of the Box host, Serge Negus. Serge, welcome back to Out of the Box. Mate, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and very weird being on the other side of the mic, for sure. Yeah, how, how does it feel? I mean, was it a, was it a tough decision to, to give it up? I, I already feel Definitely. emotionally attached to this <laughs> uh, microphone, uh, what, all of two minutes into my first program. <laughs> no, it was definitely definitely hard to give up. You, It's such a special place, FBI, and I mean, for me, it came to this point where I just had too much work going on, working you know, a, a big job at, at, at Triple J and then it just was, yeah, I just I just had to hand it on. But I mean, that's the essence of, of what this radio station is all about. It's about young people coming in and, and I guess cutting their teeth in, in making radio um, with such a lovely group of people and then passing the buck. And, and yeah, it's, it feels weird, but it feels great to, to be a part of this station for so long and, and, and yeah, having the opportunity to present such an amazing show. Yeah, I mean, you've almost you've fallen almost completely into radio. I mean, in addition to FBI, you've produced a suite of shows at the ABC. I mean, Hack's just the latest. Is is there something drawing you to the form, or is it more of an accident that that well, this is the style of journalism you've ended up producing? Well, it was actually like FBI that really, really pushed me into the direction. I mean, like I just came out of university and was struggling to to get any full time work within journalism. 
Um, and I loved FBI and, and tried to get myself involved. I had a few friends that were here and I came on board, you know, producing on mornings with Alex Pye and then, you know, did some shows for uh, All the Best and then um, also Backchat and kind of just slowly worked my way into it um, and then kind of got the opportunity to host this. And it was really, yeah, FBI and the community here is, is what has driven it. it. It really has been the driving force behind my passion for radio and I always had this idea of, of wanting to get into Hack and producing Hack and, I mean, I wouldn't have got there if it wasn't for FBI. So the, I have so much that I owe this station. It's it's an incredible place. That's pretty special. How did you go choosing your records today? I mean, it's something you ask Ugh. one person to do every week. Ugh. Harder than you realize? I actually didn't think about it when I was hosting the show, how hard it actually is to try and pick, you know, five or six tracks that you love and that try and paint a certain picture and you don't know whether to go kind of like, you know, songs that people will like and think are cool or just songs that mean something to you. It was so hard, and I still f- will walk away from this feeling like there were songs I missed that I wish I'd played, and then <laughs> I'm not sure about the ones I do play. But anyway, it'll give you a little bit of a soundbite to, to my life in some sort of way. Well, with that in mind, what would you like to play for us first? Yeah, so we'll play Go- Ghost Gums by Bad Dreams first. And these guys, for me, like uh, they just represent this like yeah, very Aussie pub rock kind of sound. Like I, I love kind of grungy rock music, and these guys I feel like are a kind of neo-Aussie grunge kind of pub rock vibe. And, and But it talks about the Aussie bush, which I'm so connected to I grew up in the bush and it just really paints a vivid picture of what it's like to be Australian I think and uh, yeah I love them they're great is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.